Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, and welcome to Dial the Gate, the Stargate Oral History Project. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for joining. This episode, we have Jonathan Glasner, co-creator of Stargate SG-1 and executive producer of SG-1, as well as co-creator of Sci-Fi's brand new television series, The Ark, along with Dean Devlin of Stargate feature film fame. Uh, we have him joining us in this episode to share uh, details on the arc, which is going to take up the first half of the show. And in the second half, we're going to go into way back Stargate history, seasons one and two. But before we get into that, if you enjoy Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, do me a favor, click that like button. It does make a difference with YouTube and will definitely help the show continue to grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend, and if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. A lot of these shows are live, so that does happen. It recently happened, actually, last week. And clips from this live stream will be released. Actually, clips from this uh, this episode, it's not a live stream, will be uh, released over the next few days on Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net's uh, YouTube channels. Again, this is this is not a live episode. This was pre-recorded uh, this past week, just before the arc aired. Uh, the first episode, the pilot, has now aired, so we're going to have Jonathan on to discuss that. As this is a pre-recorded show, the moderators will not be taking questions for Jonathan. Uh, hopefully, we'll have him back uh, later on this season, maybe season three, possibly season four, uh, to wrap up his SG-1 story. But we, we really get into the middle of his SG-1 story with this episode uh, and talk a lot about the arc. I'm really excited about this discussion. was thrilled to have him. Let's stop babbling. Let's bring in Jonathan. I'm back with executive producer and co-showrunner of The Arc, Jonathan Glasner. He also co-created this little show called Stargate SG-1 back in the day. Welcome back, sir. It's good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you too, David. This is uh, a wild time for you. You've got um, a brand new show launching. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Uh, what are you most excited about? It's airing next week uh, on our time. Um, I'm excited to see what the audience thinks of it. You know, um, I never know. I I, uh, I do some shows that I am not real proud of that turn out to be huge hits, and then I do shows that I think are... Uh, are fantastic and they don't take off so i never know i happen to think this show is great i'm i'm loving every second of it and i'm very proud of it so hope you know hoping the audience thinks so too absolutely i i want to know right off the bat because i um was a huge fan of of 1899 and then they killed it um and a lot of us were watching these these shows drop like flies how long is your game plan for this series? What is what is your intent? Do you have a specific number of of seasons of an arc? Are you kind of playing it as you go? Where's where where are you at? Uh, we have thought ahead um, uh, probably one more season just because 
I learned long ago that if you think too far ahead, unless you're doing a show like Lost that has one giant secret, um, I learned that if you think ahead, it ends up going in the trash anyway because actors give you something that you hadn't thought of, things work that you thought would work, and things don't work that you didn't that you also thought would work, and you know you end up going down different paths, and then it's like trying to get back on track is crazy. So we we thought this season beginning to end before we even started writing it. And we have a pretty good idea of next season. And God willing, there's another season after that. We'll, I'm sure we'll probably have an idea of what it is halfway through next season. Have there been surprises along the way that um, production, that cast have shown are, are possible and your story has been is going to be adjusting uh, to correspond with that? Um, not really. It's, it's weird. The show has gone kind of exactly as planned. The only thing I will say is, is things, nuanced things. There've been things that, you know, the, these actors are amazing. We're, we are, we got so lucky with our casting and, the, you know, we'll be watching dailies and they'll do something. There'll, there'll be some little look to the other person, some nuance that Dean and I will say, well, what was that? That kind of makes me feel like this is going to happen. Maybe we should go down that path. But those are more for their personal stories, their individual stories. The overarching story, um, we pretty much stuck to. Okay, good. Klaus, how has the, the set worked out for you? As in shooting in Serbia, I mean, you, I read a New York, uh, New York Post article with Dean. He was like, you know, the production value that we're getting out of Serbia is just stellar. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, we did the outpost together there. Uh, for four years or three years of the four years. And we basically just, when Outpost got canceled, we just said, let's keep that crew and keep that, uh, those sound stages and move over to this show. Cause they were great. Uh, so that's what we did. You know, it doesn't really matter where we shoot the show cause it's completely in, inside the ship. That's certainly true. <laughs> yeah, so. Or when exteriors, we which are also the same thing. Kind of. Right. Well, we were originally in Serbia because, uh, it, because of money, but also because, they actually have medieval castles and things like that for the outpost, uh, but we we don't need this on this show. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if you have a well-oiled machine, why why uh, fix something that isn't broken? Yeah, you know, and you have you have the willing the willing talent to pull it off. So, yeah, exactly. Who have been uh, your surprise uh, uh, rising star performers out of out of this this crew that? you think that the audience is really going to to attach you know, themselves to or you personally are attached to i i can't pick i can't pick between my babies it's uh i i will say that you know every show i've ever done pretty much you know you, you go through the casting and you know the actors nail the audition and you feel like uh you know fingers crossed they can actually do this but you never know if they've been you know if they've been practicing with a with a teacher for you know weeks to get that one performance right and then they show up on the set and they're not very good which has happened to me before um and in this case it was an international cast so we never met any of them in person before we started shooting it was all done over zoom as soon as we started seeing dailies we were like nailed it nailed it nailed it every one of them has just been great so I'll, I'll tell you we don't have any weak links that's for sure they're all they're just great they're delivering yeah. So are you still in, in production or are you through the 12th? No, we're finished. We're finished. Wow. We're just doing some, we're still doing some visual effects work, but I don't know. Wow. And so you're just waiting for an order for season two then basically is what yeah. this comes down to. Yeah. All right. 
I gotta tell you, and I've watched the first episode. We're not gonna get into spoilers yet. This is spoiler free so far. But Stacy Reed, um, she's she's great to to watch, and she's she's spunky. You yeah, know? yeah, um, she's great. She's and you know what? She's she. We I found out later. We didn't know this when we cast her, but she's actually sort of a geek herself. She. She reads science. So she actually apparently was walking around the set talking to the other cast saying, you know, this is true. This is how. So it's very much her in a way. I mean, she's she's a lot hipper than the character. But <laughs> Well, isn't that great when you could bring something uh, kind of real in, in the present into into your into your product? Yeah. yeah. So and I think she may and I think she she may be distantly related to me. R.E.A.B. My, my British ancestor is a read. Her dad is British, too. So. <laughs> wow, that would be wouldn't that be weird? I know. Uh and uh Ryan Adams, uh he's kind of like perhaps a, kind of like a counterpart to her. I enjoyed really watching these two. So so Stacy uh was was playing Alicia Evans and Ryan is uh uh the 4H kid they called him, Angus Medford. Uh he was cool to watch too, but you yeah. I I loved how if you you have the characters and like, if you're in high school, you can see which tables all these people would sit at. But that, and that's really fun. That's a good more, way to put it. Right. Okay. Well, you you see where the show can potentially go from the first episode. We have to kind of, in our minds, okay, this person goes in this box. This person kind of goes in this box. But as we watch, it's going to be like, okay, who's going to be stepping out of their box and giving us, you know, something that we don't expect based on this personality trope that we see in front of us and where they've been placed on the ship in the hierarchy you know well I'll, i will say that yeah, out of necessity um because of the structure of the story of the pilot you know, it starts with the disaster instead of you know the sort of this traditional way that a lot of these shows are done pretty much every show i've ever done also you um you first you get to meet the characters kind of get to know them before the ship hits a fan in this case the ship hits the fan and then you get to meet the characters and out of necessity, they have to be somewhat a a tip. You know, they have to sort of be prototypes at first because you're not going to have time to stop and say, "Well, this is what happened in my past," and I, you know, they've got to they've got to fix the oxygen <laughs> or they're going to die. So, so as you watch the series, their characters blossom into full blown, uh, really interesting characters, and most of them are not what you expect. Some of them are, but most of them are not. I love um, personally slower sci-fi, and one of the great things about SG One was you got both. Is every episode going to be a frenzy? We have to fix this next thing, or we're going to die, or is there room for slow character for development? Two people in a room talking, figuring things I, out together. I, I tend to write. And, and so does so does Dean in the style that Stargate was written in. Okay, it's you know it, it's both. There will always the shit will always be hitting the fan inside, <laughs> but we really delve into these characters and get to know them well, and 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 relationships bloom and fall apart, and you know it's a character drama first and foremost. What has the feedback been like for uh, for the show in the in the press tour that you've done so far? Are people really excited about it. So far, it's been amazing. Um, the science fiction uh, press, in particular, seems to really love it. There, they, you know, um, they got 
most of the press got uh, the first four episodes. And I think every single one of them said they they can't wait to see the fifth episode. They're all booked. So, you know, when you watch the show, stick with it. What kind of time frame does the first season cover? It, are we talking a, a few weeks? Are we talking the full, the full, you know, TV time is strange. Do you know what I mean? It, it doesn't follow a, a natural time. So we don't really know how long it all is. We know where okay. I get to, which I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> we don't get to a planet? What? <laughs> it's a space station. Uh, or when we get to to the planet, I should say. Yeah, exactly. But I would say it's a period of, of months, almost maybe a year total. One of the, the things that was, as a kind of a science geek myself, uh, was trying to figure out when I was watching the the shows, like how fast is the ship going? Are are they going faster than light? Are we dealing with relativistic travel? We don't appear to be going that fast. And if yeah. we're going as fast as the ship appears to be going, we wouldn't have reached the Kuiper Belt in in five years, leaving the solar system. And then in the preview at the end, we see the ship actually moving, which suggests that it's been it has been traveling at a faster than light speed for for most of that time, or it jumps. And no, I figured it, out it how that works. One of the things we're trying to do, because the show is not set thousands of years in the future, it's Correct. set 100 years or so in the future. So we're trying to base off of actual technology today. And you'll notice, for example, the computer consoles look like today's computers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the propulsion method on the ship is based on, well, you're a science geek, so I'll tell you, um, nuclear electrical propulsion, NEP which is a real a real theory that NASA is actually about to launch a test vehicle to do, I think, in two years. Oh. First of all, let me take, take a step back. When you're writing science fiction, there's science and there's fiction. And in order to have an interesting storyline, you can't stick completely to the science um, in, a, in a show that's exciting like this one. I mean, you can if it's a show about the science, you know what I mean? But if it's a show about people and travel and all that... You've got to you got to cheat a little bit. Uh, the best example in the pilot is you know the anti gravity thing that doesn't exist and probably never will exist without a giant rotating thing. Mm-hmm. But we would be shooting for we'd still be shooting the, the first fifteen minutes of the show. Now, if we did the whole show in zero gravity, so you know you have you have to take your you have to take your your hits. Um, so in the case of Neps, Neps right now they think will go. Um, I think they said it'll go about uh, 40% of the speed of light. We're saying that it will go just under the speed of light. So it goes up to like 99% of the speed of light. So before we were hit, that's how fast we were going. Ah, and then the ship returned to normal space. Once we took the hit, I see. well, we're in normal space the whole time because we're not going faster than the speed of light. So there's no... I see. Um, but the... Uh, but once we took the hit, we're 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 on what Star Trek would have called impulse power. We're uh, right. We're moving a little slowly until we fix everything. So I want to move into spoiler territory now a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, my understanding is is uh, two pod bays, and in the pilot we find out that the the other one decompressed or was sheared off. I think that may have been the part that was that was stuck yeah. in the in the revolving section of the ship. That's that's a fun image to think of. Um, and that had all the command <laughs> staff. Uh, were there anyone else key that were that were in that that pod or all the all the chief scientists. 
It's it's basically like first class versus uh, steerage. And uh, so the whole first class section got sheared off. Well, notes on um, on travel, interplanetary travel to anyone watching. Don't do that. Kind of, <laughs> kind of distribute your ranks a little bit, just in case something like that happens. Yeah. Um, on it, it, you know, one of the things we're trying to explore is human foibles and 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 ego. In that case, it's ego. You know, people. We talk about it in the fourth episode of why it was like that. Vague, uh, vaguely a little bit. And it's you know it was more you you were more prominent if you got to be in the in the right. officers wing so that's so people fought to get in it. The one of the things that I hope you guys lean into a little bit more, maybe not, maybe it was just a, a storytelling component for this one episode is um, the the software is not the best out there that's running no. the shit. It's caught the the. the um, Reed's Reed's character, she's like, you know, it's it's this this software is caught in a such and such. It's a it's a common problem because it's it's older. It's like, oh man, this ship isn't even running on the the best technology that Earth has. No, there has to be. Why is that? These ships were slapped together because there was a yeah. rush. Yeah, they had to get off the planet, so they're slapped together. Wow. Okay, and apparently Earth has the technology to send people. After them as well, if uh, this yeah, part, they're, one they're, target proves to be viable. Well, no, there's there's um, we we know of uh, sixteen um, arcs that were being built when we launched. We don't know how many were being built after that, um, and we were just the first to go. Each one is targeted at a different exoplanet, so they're all unique planets. Yeah, just to see where they can. Well, it's more complicated than that, but basically, yeah. I, the first group is going to different exoplanets and then the groups following our families and things going to the same, you know, each of the, of the same exoplanets. Okay. And, um, that's the plan, but we don't know what happened because we were the first ones to go and we've lost touch. So earth has gone dark. Yeah. Well, as far as we know it has. Yeah. In the, yeah. In the first one, that's, that's scary in and of itself because they, yeah. we, we see a scene with a, a family member and, and this is the last message that they received. And it's been, Four or so years since they they communicated with them, so something's something's up, you know. I love that you're planting the seed that yes, there's a lot of stuff that's that's happening on board the ship, but I mean the word alien is is bantered about in in the teaser as well for for the rest of the season. Things are going to be happening outside of the ship that are going to you know put the people on board in their own situation as well uh, for oh, a couple yeah. of different directions. This show is so full of twists and turns. You won't see any of it coming. Hopefully, it's uh, it's uh, it's a journey. Based on the information that we have right now, there there's not supposed to be any other human ships following them for the foreseeable future. Right. Well, maybe in in you know ten years, their their families will be coming. Okay. Eight, I think we say. So otherwise, they are out there alone. Yeah. All right. Okay. Would you potentially continue the show on the planet surface? Potentially. Okay. One of the things that's that's continually scary is uh how quickly um reality is catching up to science fiction. Uh yeah. or what we have in our minds. And I'm interested to see what kinds of stories uh you're going to tell uh that kind of leverage a lot of the the modern issues that we're dealing with with tech, sociological issues into the show. Can you tease us a little bit about that? 
Uh, well, two, that was sort of two issues. The first issue, yes. the science is moving so fast issue, has already bitten us in the butt. Um, and, and it happens all the time, so we just have to let it slide off our backs. But um, when we started shooting, as far as people knew, Proxima B was the closest exoplanet. And so that's where we're headed is Proxima B. So it's a real world. Yeah, it's a real planet. And it's it's four point it's like four light uh four light years away, I think. Since then we've discovered others that are closer. And we've also discovered more about Proxima B um that make it less likely to be out oh. in real life. No. So we're just forgetting about it. We can't, you know, what can we do? I, um, you know what we we got more we got better information. Proxima B turns out that it's the best candidate after all. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. this is the can. kind of thing that happens because science is moving so fast. The Webb Telescope, you know, every day is finding more exoplanets. Webb wasn't even launched when we started writing this show. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, uh, we we've already established in the pilot that we've got uh, characters from a number of different countries. They have different, not just because they're from different countries, but you know, they have they have different personal uh, objectives as well. How are you guys leveraging the diversity of the cast and you know the diversity of the audience that's going to be watching them in turns? We don't get into the diversity of the cast that much in terms of you know it's not like you know the Russians are trying to stop the Americans or right. we're not doing any of that. We're we're leaving all that behind. Um, it's more interpersonal things. Um, so really, we don't really leverage uh, the the ethnicity or the nationality of anybody at all. That's that's not part of our story. But there are people, you know, there are people who think they know better and have better ideas. Um, there are people that are scared of things that everyone else is not scared of, and so they want to avoid it. You know, there's there's constant clashing about what should we be doing. Because none of these people are in command, really, and none of them are really experts. There's that that kind of clash. Yeah, I think that the one of, one of the draws of of the show is going to be that these people are are not the ones who are supposed to be the ones in charge, and yet they're going to have to figure out a way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they all die, and they're going to have. What do you do in this situation? You do the best you can, um, and and you see you see how things uh, shake up. Yeah, that's exactly what the show's about. Basically, it's it's you know people rising to their best selves to to survive, yeah, you know, above their best selves, really, because they're they weren't prepared for this. They were supposed to be trained once they got to the planet to do things on the planet, not to do things on the ship. One of the things that I expected the show to tackle at some point, but uh, didn't expect it in the pilot, was <laughs> the people who are on the people there are. People who are on the ship who hacked themselves on. Yes. And they, you know, that's a very, with with, with everything that we see today, with systems that are just not as safeguarded as they should be, any, any digital file can be changed. Anyone can be manipulated into thinking that they're supposed to be on another arc. So that someone else can take their place, you know, the 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 human brain is is the most hackable thing, and it's happening in real time on this ship. There are there are forces at work aboard um, that are that are doing things solely for their own self preservation, and not at all um, for the the greater good of the group, as yeah. evidenced by the murder at the end of episode one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Which part of that? The uh, so we've we've got 
Yes, the stowaway. He is a smart guy, but he's not a he's not smart at life support, which is what he's supposed to be doing. Um, so he he hacked his way onto the ship, and and it's unfortunate that the person he replaced was the head of life support, and uh, almost killed everybody as a result of it. Right, but he said, "I know people on this ship uh, who have secrets, and I'm guessing." That knowledge is what killed him. So there's going to be... There's There's lots of secrets. There are lots of people with lots of secrets on this ship. The opportunities for character growth are just ripe here. They're as fertile as that dang soil that got got (laughs) snuck aboard. Um, And uh, I'm interested to see uh, what kind of uh, what kind of science we're going to see on screen that's going to kind of mirror you know what nasa and what a lot of these other companies would like to achieve um on other planets here whenever whenever we can we base it on real technology we can't always do that but whenever we can we do um and there's you know i i'm a science geek i for fun i read science magazines so it's a little bit, I do a little bit of banging my own head against the wall because I want to make it real, but I can't because it's, it just would screw up the story too bad. And I want this to be entertaining first and foremost and Absolutely. scientifically accurate secondarily. So is working with Dean still as much fun as it was working on the outpost? Yeah. He's, you know, he and I are, in terms of our taste, are the same person. You know, we're both science fiction geeks. We both love the same kind of storytelling. Um, neither of us can write without having a, a wink and a nod and a little sense of humor to it. Um, so this show is is not the heavy, dark sci-fi that, that is very popular now. It's sort of the opposite. Um, and, you know, I love that stuff. I love watching it, but it's just not what I write. Um, it's much... It's, it's, it's meant to be fun and entertaining. It's meant to be... You know, escapism, not right. Deep, dark. You know, <laughs> that's interesting. Analyzed for years, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, but that doesn't mean that it can't have substance. Well, of course, it has substance. It has plenty of substance. In the same way that the, you know, the early Star Treks did, the original and the Next Generation did. It's, there's a lot of metaphor in there. There's a lot of studying over the human condition and how we're our own worst enemy and, and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but it's not, uh, you know, it's just not dark. It's not real deep and dark mm-hmm. and, you know, full of, of, uh, of almost pseudo religious meaning underneath it. There's none of that, you know? Okay. It's, uh, you, you said it, you know, there's, there are different kinds of science fiction because it, it can be it can flex itself into almost every other genre that exists. But if you're not escaping from the real world into another space, uh, uh, you that's that allows you to appreciate the time that you've that you've been away from your normal world. Mm-hmm. You really have to have be in a specific mindset to enjoy it. And with this, yeah, you can just you don't have to like place yourself there. It looks like you can just turn it on and have a good time and have frankly have a good time with your whole family you don't have to you know wait until the the younger ones are in bed right that's the idea yeah it's it's good stuff you know like one of my favorite science fiction uh properties i guess because it's been every it's been a book a movie and every series and everything is dude 
but Dune is, it's almost like a religious experience. You know, it's, it's so foreign to what we actually know the setting is that, um, I, you know, it's like, I'm, could I write that is what goes through my head. I love watching it, but that's just, that's not. Cats. Yeah. What'd you think of the film? The new one. I liked it. I liked it. I, I wish they had taken the first film and split it into two films. I thought they compressed the first act of it too much. I, I missed things that I knew were there from the book and right. Um That bugged me. Yeah, uh, they, they're in charge. They're in charge of Arakeen for like a blink, and then you know it gets yeah. taken over, and Leto's dead, and it's like, wow, it's it moves even faster than the two thousands miniseries did, and I thought yeah. that was saying something. Yeah, I so. think they wanted to get the Zendaya as soon as they could. Exactly. And <laughs> <laughs> she's you know, great, you know. She's great, and they wanted to get you know she was you know they figured she was box office, so they take exactly. that. That's what I think happened, but who knows? Right. No, it's. Uh, I'm interested to. I'm interested to see the uh, the second one for it sure. It certainly was stunning. God, it was beautiful film. Tell us about uh, a little bit about um, your your staff writers. Um, but it, 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 you got Kendall Lampkin, John Paul Nickel, I believe. Um, okay. Who are you uh, looking forward to cultivating as 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 writers? You know, moving forward into this into this new space. There's also Rebecca Rosenberg, okay. who. Uh, she's the one I'm, I guess, if, if I'm cultivating anybody, okay. her, she's cultivating herself as far as I'm concerned, but she, uh, we gave her her first writing job on the outpost okay. and we were so thrilled with her that we brought her onto this one also. And she's just, she's amazing. She's doing great. And JP came from, um, warehouse 13. Okay. He, he ran it towards the end of the, of the run. Um, and so he, you know, he's very experienced and he's great. He brings a lot of the humor to the, to the scripts. He's a very funny guy. Okay. This is, this is a pretty well-rounded group. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited, uh, for, for what you guys have got, uh, got going. Are, are we going to get, uh, straight 12 episodes? Are there going to be any breaks in the middle? What, what do you gonna know of, uh, sci-fi's release strategy? I don't know what their, their release strategy is. They, you know, I hope they're going to air them straight through. Okay. But, you know, there may be some special event or something stuck in there. I mean, we, we are going to deliver the episodes in time for them, too. We, we've already delivered them the first six. Okay. So, so Are there any cliffhangers? Oh, yeah. There's Every one of them ends with a cliffhanger. Oh. <laughs> okay. Pretty much, yeah. All yeah. Right. I mean, uh, this show keeps moving. It moves. It moves very quickly. I think, in some respects, modern audiences have come to expect that uh, it's it's the juxtaposition against the you know the slow moving character piece. Uh, uh, get get back to the story, you know what's what's going to yeah, happen next. Exactly, and I you know I think with our our TikTok days, I, I think people want things to move a little faster. I think uh, you know people who are not diehard you know science fiction fans who read every piece of every book that ever comes out every. Would rather see it move a little faster, I think, and, and we're hoping to get a, a broad audience of science fiction fans and not science. I mean, I'll give you an example. My my, this is this is a horrible thing to say, but it's true. My wife doesn't like anything, any show I work on because she doesn't like science fiction. She's not a sci-fi fan, so she doesn't watch. She's she's seen maybe three Stargates. She's not interested. She's not interested. Okay, that's a shame. She, she started seeing me working on. This show, you know, I, I get because I uh, I get cuts and things sent to me that I watch at home, 
and she got hooked. And she's now as our biggest fan. She's she loves all the characters. She wants to know what we're going to do with them. And um, that's great. So that's that. Hopefully that that is the pattern here. That the sci-fi guys can or or women can sit down and watch the show, and their spouse or their significant other who doesn't usually can watch it with them. You know, laugh. It says something about the accessibility of the product. Wow. That's what we're going. That's what we're shooting for. Absolutely. Well, congratulations again. And, you know, um, uh, uh, let's, let's, let's see this thing, uh, uh, just get, get out of the gate running. So it's going to be interesting to watch it. Um, I want to, to go to the other, uh, uh, big Stargate series that you're known for, uh, or big sci-fi series that you know for, and not the Outer Limits. Uh, when you guys were shooting SG-1, you were also shooting Outer Limits. The first um, season, yeah. The, the the first season. The first season of Stargate, Brad and I were still doing Outer Limits, and then we walked away from Outer Limits after that. Okay. Um, and I think you indicated the last time that we spoke that each of you kind of divvied up your own episodes and and like did not like completely independently of one another, but you were in charge of yours and he was in charge of his, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and eventually Robert Cooper was in charge of his own also. Okay. And and the reason for the reason for that was not that show was a huge show because we had, um, three sound stages and two, um, set, construction places and basically a, a clothing factory working for us all at once because we were going to different planets and so we needed every week we needed some massive set or some creature or some um uh culture that we had to build wardrobe for 20 extras for or 40 extras for so it was a big it was a big lift and if we had to be overlooking all of them all at once, it would probably would have killed us. So that's why we divided it up that way. So I could go to this set where they were building this. And we were also usually shooting more than one at a time. So wow. one of us could be at one set and the other one could be at the second unit of the other set. Um, it was a big undertaking, that show. How much extra one runway were you given with the fact that you knew that you were going to have four seasons and then five uh, pretty quickly from the start did that how much did that free you up as opposed to other projects where it's like well we're gonna give you another six hugely hugely freed us up it freed us up in in multiple ways it frees up story-wise because we knew we had time to have the story arcs go slowly and not you know just throw them out um it, it worked in terms of uh making the show bigger because we could amortize the giant sets over more episodes. So it enabled us to build a much bigger Stargate headquarters. Uh, it, and it enabled us to think ahead the way I was just saying. So we would, one of the things that Brad and I did that, um, that I'm very proud of because it never happens on most shows is we were always six scripts ahead of production. You say six. Yeah. Wow. And the reason for that was because the art director had to start drawing the sets for this civilization. The wardrobe people had to start drawing pictures of the wardrobe. Visual effects people in some cases had to start figuring out what a ship was going to look like or a, of a, you know, a cityscape or something that they were going to have to do in visual effects because back then 
the render time would could be a month, you know, for a shot. And um, so we were always ahead, and that enabled us to do it. We couldn't have done that if we didn't know if we had any more episodes coming, you know. So that was very beneficial. The um, uh, Richard Hudolin is a genius. I mean, the step that he was able to kind of pull off there. And um, Bridget. And Bridget, who took over for him later. The wire. Yeah, she was his uh, art director when he wow. was the designer, yeah. Can you tell us anything about the gate itself? Because you guys were missing pieces of that thing, and it was a technological marvel. The fact that in as in 10 years, as far as I know of, it never missed a glyph. Can you can you tell us about what what you went through to to bring that thing to life? You know the 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 art department and the mechanical people that we hired on the crew built they built a new one from scratch and they and and I one of the things that I said to them when we were setting it to show up was this thing has to work every time because we can't shut down shooting because oh shoot they have to fix the the gate again you know it's got to work every time. And, um, you know, cut to a month later, they say, come in and see. And we went in and they demonstrated it for us and, and they had it set up so they could literally dial in what glyph was going to, it was going to stop on and the thing was going to click clunk. And it was, they were amazing, you know, extraordinary piece of, of machinery. And, yeah. uh, and it was a big, heavy sucker. I mean, it took a lot for them to make that thing work. Were you on set for, uh, when they were filming Children of the Gods? Were you on? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I remember the first day, uh, the dailies came back and there was, there was a crack down the middle of the footage. Like the, the weather was beating well, it was, guys up. It was worse than that. It was, we had to shut down the first day that it was, um, it was raining so hard and the wind was so strong that the rain was going horizontally and it blew over our set. That, that big, uh, prison set that that uh, Teal saves us from. Yeah, the Chulak. The, ex- the exterior of that was actually built up on the mountain, and it blew over. We could we had to shut down and go back the next day, which is a really scary thing to do the first day of production on a series. Is where I'm thinking, God, are we cursed? Well, this <laughs> this has to happen the first day. Come on! Wow. Um. The uh. uh the location, though, especially you know, with with the rocks uh, going out from the Stargate, it's it's one of the one of the coolest from the entire show. You really got to take advantage of the mountains in the background. Which I mean, don't get me wrong, there were mountains in most of and uh, many of the episodes. But yeah, I welcome to Vancouver, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what else do you remember with with Mario as a party and 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 filming that pilot? Um, I know it takes you back. Yeah, I don't remember a lot. I, I, I remember that that's it's one time, I don't know if I should tell you this story, and I'm not sure I remember it exactly, but it's one time that uh, Richard Dean Anderson, I think, started to trust me more. even more was because um, Mario was shooting this shot. You remember the shot where the, the camera comes up and over and finds him looking out through the telescope? Yeah, at the beginning of the show. Yeah. He was shooting it, you know, the way that you see it on the show is the camera goes like this, right? But the first way he shot it was like this. And I, I called cut and said, you know, that's not flattering 
first shot of our lead is not going to be looking up his nose. And so he had to reconfigure the shot. And afterwards, Rick said, thanks for that. <laughs> so then, you know, that's a story I remember. I, I think the only reason I remember it is because that's sort of the moment when I knew, okay, Rick and I are going to get along fine. Um, well, your talent's got to know, you know, that, that the producers have, have got his back and as, and as well as his nostrils. You know, yeah. I mean, come on, this is, this is our lead here. You know? Yeah, nobody, the opening shot. nobody looks... Nobody looks good from here. Uh, I don't care how good looking you are. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Do you, uh, Don the had had told me that um, uh, there were certain people that were uh, suggesting kind of a limitation of his performance. This is the general. This is what he does. And he was like, you know, I was, I was, I was in the army. This is this doesn't feel right. And as the show progressed, uh, he was able to. Loosen the guy up a little bit, you know, and and become the the teddy bear that we all that we all came to love. He, what he really became more of was himself, right? He was, he was the sweetest guy. He was just a great guy. The entrance of Apophis at the top of this episode, Peter Williams, I mean, carried <laughs> so much of that that episode. If you did not believe him as the villain. If you did not believe that he was legitimate, if you're like, oh my God, this is this guy is hamming it up. I can't watch this. You know, he was so authentic in taking uh the best of what Jay Davidson had in the movie and adapting that species into his own. He was Apophis, putting on airs and everything. You you believe that that guy commanded that role. We had had Peter play two different parts in the Outer Limits prior to this. So we knew him well, and we knew what he could do. And so the part was practically written for him. We we all all along we knew it was probably going to be him. Um, so it worked out well that way because <laughs> he yeah. was. When you interview Dean, ask ask him about uh, Jay. He's got good stories that I I'm not at liberty to tell you, but see if he'll tell you. Absolutely, no. We had uh, and we also had uh, uh, Doctor uh, Stuart Tyson Smith on the Egyptologist from. From the film as well, there was a there was a discovery process for sure. So absolutely, um, in the pilot, there is a controversial uh, scene um, that has uh, continued to to come up because it, it's always interfering every time the show gets published in a new in a new area. Um, there is a scene of nudity in the pilot, uh, and we had Vaitiari uh, Hershon on to to discuss that. Um, recently in the past year how is she she's wonderful i haven't heard a word about her and she what a beautiful human inside and out i'll send you the link for the show okay but one of the things that she was uh she was surprised that she was under the uh, uh, uh under the she she understood that she was going to be shot from the from the chest up but she was surprised when she found out that she was completely visible, and they, she said that she actually had to go in and sign an updated contract at the end for that shot to even be released. Oh, you see, I didn't know any. I didn't know any of that in terms of the contract because I was not privy to any of that. Wow. The, the business affairs people do the contracts, and they're they're here in L.A. But what I do know is that I will always regret that we did any nudity in the show, and we did it for Showtime. Yeah, that they demanded it. Yes. Well, they didn't. They didn't say you have to do nudity here, right? What did they insist in the pilot? 
But what well, what they did say was this show has to be something that you can only see on cable. It can't be a show that you would see on ABC or CBS or NBC because the all they cared about was getting subscribers. And in today's mindset, things you can only see on cable are things that are controversial or dark or, you know, The Sopranos started the, that path. But back then, it was uh, cussing, nudity, and extra vi- and you know, graphic violence. Those are things they couldn't show on the networks, and so that's what you did on cable. And so they said, you've got to put some of that stuff in. And personally, I would rather have nudity than graphic violence. Um, I, you know, I think a, a naked body is is much less offensive than scenes of my head get blown off. Um, so that's what we did. And, um, when we were watching the, the cut, we asked if we could take it out and they said they'd rather we not take it out. And so we left it in, but then in, it, it came out in the syndicated version. Uh, we took it out, obviously, but had to. Um, and Brad then later took it out of the DVD version after I was gone. But when it came on in the pilot, uh, we were like, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. And we just refused to do any more in the show so we just wouldn't do it um and they never they never explicitly said do nudity they said but the reason they canceled the show when they canceled it was because it was something you could just see on network tv well that's why it stopped in five years it stopped in three years didn't it on on was it five years on five years on showtime yeah that's why okay i can yeah. understand where they're coming from you know if you're going to yeah. get this anywhere else then why have it here exactly. at the same time if it's successful, if it's doing great, you know, to the point where right. it gets picked up another five years, why, why again, um, why well, fix here, something that isn't broken? Here was the problem with that, is the, the deal that MGM made for the show, um, for financial reasons to make it producible, because it was a very expensive show, Yeah, was it went into syndication only like three weeks or something, I don't remember what the exact time was, after it aired on Showtime. So if you just waited three weeks, you could see it for free. So Showtime needed their version to have something in it that made it so you'd watch it on Showtime and not in syndication. Um, so that was the added problem. And you, I can't knock NGM for doing that because that's what made it possible for us to make the show. But um, but that's what that's that's what generated that problem. That's certainly true. I re- I found the show in its first run syndication, and it was thirteen or fourteen months after. The, the original had aired. And in the scheme of things, you know, when when Showtime is doing its rerun blocks, you know, a few months later, that's not a lot of reruns to to really pull that off. Yeah. So that makes were you, sense. Were you in the States? I was. I thought it was less time than that. It was, I, it was, so uh, I, this was September of 1998 that I first saw the show. I wonder if you were seeing- September. I wonder if you were seeing the rerun of the rerun. In it's, it's possible. I, I always thought that I saw it the first night that it aired. Uh, it was Saturday night, like 10 o'clock, and I was expecting Outer Limits or Poltergeist the Legacy. Instead, I got this really expensive ring. and like, well, something's happening here. And so I watched the first part, and it kept on going. It's like, well, I got to go to church next morning, so I'm going to take the rest. And so I did, and I, was, and, and I was hooked. I was hooked after that. And then that Sunday night, that was the ABC affiliate, that Sunday night on NBC, Stargate was the movie of the week. Huh. What are the odds? 
Oh, I'm sure that was intentional. I'm sure MGM put it on that way to promote the Good show. Good for MGM because I got yeah. up to after that. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the pilot just, uh, all around, you know, you have, you have great cast. You have for this, you can stay at my place. You know, you've got the humor and everything is fully working there. And you have promise for, for much more at the end of that episode. Uh, the broken divide. This yes. was, uh, one of, uh, your episodes and this was, you know, Stargate feeling itself out with the characters, you know, taking advantage of, um, of, uh, of a historical uh, concept, uh, the broker divide and, and adapting it for, uh, this show. Um, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts looking back on, on that particular episode? I know we're reaching again for something very specific yeah. esoteric. Um, the one thing I remember is the difficulty we had with the prosthetics on the on the people uh, when they became chromagnons. Yeah, for lack of a better word, brokeified. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was never completely satisfied with it. I thought it looked a little hokey, but it was hard to do because we had to do it to a lot of people. If we were just doing it to one person, it would have been spectacular. But we had to find a way to do it to a bunch of people and. On a TV schedule, so I remember that being problematic. Um, I don't remember much else about it. My understanding was Rick stopped production for uh, for to have his 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 uh, headpiece redone. Oh, that could be that could be. Uh, yeah, it, it was a constant nightmare. It kept they kept pulling off and leaving seams, and it was it was it was a mess. You guys are. Figuring yourselves out, you know. Well, and it wasn't just that; it was, it, you know, we never did that much prosthetic again after that. We would do a prosthetic on one person or two people, but we would never have a, an entire uh, race of people with it, you know, in the show where we had to have all the extras in it. So, uh, because we learned our lesson, there's there's some uh, standout performances in that episode. I think Teal really grows uh, in that show because he's on his own and he's a fish out of water, still pretty much at this point, still figuring out how how the Air Force works and how. Uh, the the team has to uh, do what it does. Uh, Christopher was really beginning to shine in some of these stories when he uh, wasn't just the the statue in the background uh, being you know s- s- look mean and take points. You know, I mean, he had that he had that that uh, that presence to him, but uh, the guy could act. Yeah, yeah, I remember um, one of the reasons we did that episode, if I remember correctly was to give him uh, some heroic time, some time to do more than just, as you say, be the statue in the background. Um, everybody else had had their shot at it, and we were having a hard time finding excuses for him to do it by himself since he was not yet fully trusted, you know, by the military. And and so that was, uh, if I remember correctly, that was the episode one. That's why we wrote that one, was to find a way to make it so that he could be the one saving the day. I think um, some of Christopher's episodes uh, and moments are some of the strongest in that first season. Uh, we recently did a rewatch of Korai on uh, Wormhole Extremists. And in terms of television trials, damn, that's good. You know, especially the scene between him and Rick. And they are arguing over, you know, what is, where, who, who does the buck stop with? And it's the Nuremberg question. Mm-hmm. Who does the buck truly stop with? And you've got that's two what, people. Well, that's what science fiction does best. That's 
that was one of those episodes where I was like, yeah, that's what we should be doing more of. That's, and we had fun. I, I just remember having a lot of fun in the writer's room on that one saying, well, what can his argument be here? You know, what's the other side of this? And we got to play lawyer for a little while. It was, it's, writer. it's delicious to watch them because you can see on Jack's face that he, in terms that he believes, I mean, he doesn't think that, you know, he's as guilty as Teal because he, he wasn't under such a, such a malicious regime, but he knows in other ways, he's just as guilty as Teal is with taking lives. And so as Teal is willing to, to let himself be hung for this, Jack isn't, you know, Jack's like, we, we had a job to do and we did it. And now I'm your CEO and I'm telling you to keep your mouth shut so that I can try and get you out of this. It's yeah. an extraordinary hour of TV. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, I, that was one of my favorites, too. One of my uh, favorite guests. You know what's funny, though, is yeah, we were at this, we were at sci-fi, uh, the science fiction convention in, um, in New Orleans promoting the arc, and somebody asked me, what was your favorite Stargate episode? And that, I was trying to think of that one, and I was trying to think of the Tokra, and I could not remember the name Korai. And it was, and it, and I was so I started describing the episode. And it was embarrassing, but that was a long time ago. It's a good show, you know. People are people are 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 still eating it up in droves. Um, one of my favorite guest appearances uh, in in that first episode is Sue Ann Braun as as Hathor. Uh, uh, you co-wrote with uh, uh, I believe David Bennett Karen and J. Larry uh, Carroll. Uh, we we bring this uh, Egyptian figure to life in this show, and she did that with a tremendous amount of of poise. You know, she still recalls very fondly uh, that experience on the show. Can you tell us about casting Sue Ann? I just remember uh, seeing her audition and thinking she was great. It didn't, it, it, you know, it, there's not a whole lot of story to it. That was about it. I will tell you that that episode was originally designed to be one that had nudity in it oh yes i saw the the illustrations and we very quickly you know that it was that's how far ahead we were on the scripts right right and we said no no no, no. we're not we're not doing it and uh so we went to the wardrobe people and said can you just make her sexy but not anything not showing anything and that's what they did and they came up with that wonderful outfit she wears most of the show absolutely and that was like real metal she said that thing you know it's it, sometimes you think that things are, are a certain way for television other things they are exactly as they appear or even perhaps more comfortable but she looks great as a result and you know even she says you know i it was worth it so yeah she um it's interesting one of the departments that don't get enough credit on the show was the wardrobe department i mean the amount of wardrobe they had to manufacture and they you know most shows you can just go out and buy wardrobe, right? They had to make everything for the these cultures. You know, the the military uniforms, obviously, and the earth uniform, earth clothes they could buy, but the uh, you know they had to make that from scratch. They had to design it and make it. You really had to. Christina McQuarrie was just brilliant. Yeah, you really had to find people who. Uh, were willing to work those long hours in the trenches for for not one typical show, but in, in some respects, like two or three 
of that quantity because you're I, I remember Richard Udolan saying, you know, every week we do we we make worlds. You know, that's a huge undertaking. Not everyone can just pull that off. It was kind of amazing what they pulled off and we would you know, we'd go on the stage one day and it would be they'd be stripping a set out and you know, four days later there's this, you know, massive, you know, set that normally would be like the standing set for a series, you know, that would be for the whole series. And this was just for one episode. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. When you and Brad were drafting uh, the first season and bringing it to life, was it your intent from pretty early on that Apophis was going to pay us a visit by the end, that Earth was going to come under direct attack? The the promise of of what the uh, the the film really set out to uh, suggest with a larger enemy threat out in the wild was going to come true that Earth was going to be paid a visit. We always had the idea that once we let the gold know we're we're here. You know, and the, we killed Ra. That they're going to want to come pay us a visit, and that's how it manifested itself ultimately. But that's where we started with with saying, you know, it, when we, when Brad and I were first starting working off the show, we, and we were looking at the movie and trying to stay as true to it as we could, we said, um, "Well, they killed Ra, but then what? You know, what what do, what do Ra's people, whoever they are, going to do about it?" And that's kind of what launched us into an office and having him come back. And you get a great uh, uh, closure of this season. It's it, when you stand back and you look at it, it really is a four-parter because you have there before the grace of God, you have politics, you have within the serpent's grasp, and then you have the serpent's lair. Man, am I a geek for just knowing that? But you really, you really <laughs> amazed me. I'm flirting with Sam. So sorry. The other part of me is like, no, this works. There before the grace of God, I love it because. We see everything go to hell. And I, this, the hairs are standing up on the back of my neck just thinking about it with Michael Shanks's line, they're coming when he comes back over because we see just how bad it can get. Because we know in the show, we're not, you know, the heroes are ultimately going to save the day with a, with a certain amount of sacrifice. But in this case, you guys decided to show it all. And that was a, that was a great stroke. Whoever came up with that idea is like, you know what, let's go to a place where we can we can tell a really dark story with our characters and literally uh, experience this. I don't know. Brad probably said this to you, but we we prided ourselves on the outer limits of of destroying the earth at least once every fourth episode or so. Oh, yeah, and <laughs> and so you know that's what makes that's what makes it the most heightened is if you can take it right up to the to the edge of disaster and come through. You know. I, you know, I directed those episodes and the last, the, um, the last image of the earth when they, they come up over in the, the, in the, uh, space shuttles coming up over the horizon. That's what made my, the hairs on the back of my neck, which was, was by design, but these shuttles, they are formidable craft. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a shot. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we brought, you brought back, uh, you, you did the, you wrote within the serpent's grasp, uh, with, uh, with James Crocker and you, you directed, like you said, serpent's lair. Um, one of the things that, uh, that Brad mentioned in the DVD was that it's suggested that, that Scarred, uh, and Chlorel die. Uh, but in the editing room, you guys change that around so that he escapes with a poppus. You use an, Use a previous shot of Scar and Chlorel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, you know, this was a time when the internet was really just starting up and there were all these, they called them bulletin boards, BBSs back then, which is basically like, sort of like Twitter, I guess, but they were, they were, what's more like um, Reddit. They're, they're taught, they were topical bulletin boards. And so people, there was, there were Stargate fan bulletin boards and people were posting and when they saw the end of the first season that we had killed Scara, they went ballistic. The, the fans just hated that we had killed him. And so we responded and we had already shot the second one, the, you know, the uh, Serpent's Lair, Serpent's Bath, Serpent's Lair, Serpent's Bath, which is the second uh, one. Serpent's, Serpent's Lair. Yeah. Is this is and, the second one? And so we went to the visual effects teams and we said, can we beam him up with Apophis? And they cut him out of a shot and put him in that shot. And it satisfied the audience that at least he was alive. It was worth it. And, you know, it's it's one of those it's one of those cool stories where it's like it, it's the 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 fans were being listened to. You know, even back yeah. in season two. That's cool. Today, today, it's harder to you can't really do that today because. There are so many sites and so many fans and so many voices, and it's just overwhelming. Your head will explode if you try to read all of it. But back then, it was really there were probably two bulletin boards dedicated to Stargate, and that was it. You know, so you could go actually read them, which we did. And it's also back up. then, people weren't as mean as they are now. True, <laughs> because They're you not. had to use you had to use your real name. You couldn't use. So you, people were a little more polite. Always wasn't always about the next jab, but no, I mean that's there's that I will say this for for the Stargate crowd largely. It is compared to the the for instance the Star Wars crowd. It is largely very well behaved, and I think largely because it skews older. If if you look at the demographic yeah. data for for a lot of this, it's you know thirties and forties, uh, and you're presenting an intellectual product, which lends itself to intellectual discussion. So I will say which that. Is, which is fine. I mean, that's true. I think that's true of most science fiction. But then there's still, you know, the people who get angry and somehow manage to bring the today's politics into it. And Oh, of course. This is too woke or this is not woke enough. For, right. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Season two, uh, I, I want to I get to the toker and then, and then cut off um, because that, that's obviously a, a big one. But before that, we have, uh, we have the gamekeeper which you co-wrote with Brad Wright. This is one of my favorite episodes of the show. You have a semi, well, for one thing you use the, the top of Vancouver Bloedel conservatory for, for the exterior and interiors. Uh, but also you had an incredible guest performance by, by Dwight Schultz. And we have a great peek into some of Jack's history, which was rare. We never met his parents in the entire show, but we saw what he was doing in East Germany and what he, what he had to do in the cold war. And we saw the death of Daniel's parents, and so it, it was it was a great sci-fi idea, um, and it it allowed us to explore the characters a little bit more as well. What can you what do you remember about the gamekeeper? I know that Brad and I came up with it on a plane. <laughs> We're sitting on a plane, being flown to L.A. for a meeting or or back to Vancouver for from a meeting, one or the other, with the studio. And we were just batting around ideas and came up with it on that flight. Um, 
and then we went and wrote it. I think we were in a hurry on that one. I think this was one of the times where we needed that sixth script because mm. we were behind. And um, I remember being very excited that we got Dwight Schultz because I had grown up watching the A-Team. Right. And thought that he was so funny on the A-Team and, and he can do all those characters and he he's perfect for the part. When I heard we got him, I was thrilled. Um, and he was, he was great for the part. I mean, he's such a character. He is. And under that hat, I mean, like whatever this, <laughs> it's, um, he, uh, he, he played that really well. And it's funny, you know, got, you've got, uh, everything's blooming outside. He's got the residents trapped in there and their virtual reality. Cause he doesn't want them to ruin the garden. <laughs> and it's just hysterical to watch. It's like, you gotta let the inmates out of the prison. The crisis is over, you know. You can't you can't keep cultivating the garden just for your own little, uh, so you can be king of your particular hill. You got to let these people out. It's a great little story. I love that show, and it and it gives us a look at Michael acted his his pants off, and so did Rick. You know, we get insights into both of their pasts. That was another show where we really had a great cast. There there wasn't a weak link in that cast. We have this idea with in the line of duty that our worst fear comes true what happened to kowalski happens to one of our core team members and it's a great moment you've got you've got the gliders blowing up the beach and sam gives mouth to mouth to one of the the nassians who, who have who have fallen and jolinar takes her over and we don't know about the topra at this point we have no idea who they are and we're like well we did this with Kowalski and it didn't work. How are we going to get Sam back? You're introducing the idea of the Topra and Tilk is aware of them a little bit, you know. Um, but I love that episode because, you know, we it was it was great growth for Sam and it leads into the Topra run in, one and two. Tell us about developing that uh, that uh, offshoot of the race, the 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 anti Goa'uld. There was a point where I said, I'm getting sick of these gold all being evil, 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 bad, bad, bad. And I don't believe there's any any culture or race in the world, except maybe the uh, the Klingons, um, that are, then are, every single one of them are bad. There's got to be some resistance to that within their own people. And that got my mind going, and I started thinking, well, what if there are rebels within them that could actually help us? It, it would give them more dimensions, um, the ghoul themselves more dimensions, and it would uh, help us expand upon their culture and learn a little more about their culture. And um, it would give us a lot of story, which it ultimately did give us a lot of story. Um, and then I, then when we got to the Chokra, I thought about what is the most touching way we could do that. And that's when we came up with uh, Dad has cancer, and the one way to heal him is to put a ghoul in him. And... Uh, Thank God for Carmen. He was, because that part could have been really bad because he had to play two characters in the same body and without a really good actor doing it. it And with cancer. Yeah. Without a really good actor doing it, it could have been funny. Funny in the wrong way, you know. And Carmen just nailed it. I wanted to give him a big hug. He came back for so many shows. You know, his yeah. his death it was that was a hard one to swallow. 
because everyone knew him at, in the Stardew fan base and his dad. You know, dad has passed away. And it was just, that was his character. And he loved that part. He 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 adored it. And he adored Amanda and the rest of the cast. You guys really had a gem there. Absolutely. Yeah, he was, and he was such a sweet guy and talented. I wanted to cast him in every show I ever did, but I never was able to. He was busy. Yeah, he was busy, and I never had a part a part that was really. Uh, yeah, that it's it's an example of one of those great uh, uh, setups. You've you've got all the runway uh, to put together an interesting story like that because he's introduced in secrets and his illness, uh, which is another terrific episode uh, in itself. You've got multiple layers going on with Abydos and with Earth and the the political intrigues. It, the the Earth side stuff is starting to come out. You know, people other people know about this thing. Kenzie's talking to somebody. Um, but uh, you really leveraged that uh, with Carmen. And with Jacob and Selmak, you have a um, a, a great, you know, if, if something's going on, we just, that we need a little bit more help. You know, we dial in Jacob. You know, we need we need this thing to see these bugs. You know, maybe we should check in the Toker. Maybe they've got something going on there. Mm-hmm. It was it was a great. They were a great lever of an ally that we could go to. Not not like they could fix everything for us, but it's like okay, let's let's add some moving parts to this. Yeah, it was somebody to go to. Them and the Asgard became very much that. This has been has been great, Jonathan, and I really appreciate you uh, uh, taking the time to. Um, go to one of your old shows and discuss through it a little bit more while we're uh, eagerly anticipating uh, the next one. And I think that um, I, th- I think that if I watching the watching the pilot, I think you've got a tiger by the tail here. Um, well, thank this you. Is, this is going to be this is going to wait to wait to see the rest of it. It gets better and better. I can't wait. I am part wants to go back to him and say, "Hey, give me the other three. This isn't fair." I <laughs> shop liver. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't. You know, I think you might have asked for it before they had the other three. Ah, uh, okay. they gave the other three to everybody right before TCAs. I so, see. So they wouldn't get out. Okay. Well, I I I can't recommend the show enough uh, to audiences. If you're watching this, it means you like Stargate, and if you like Stargate, this is going to be in your neck of the woods for sure. And give the characters a chance, and give the setting a chance because. It, uh, it, they, you, you guys get off cooking with gas and it doesn't let up. So, so I'm, I'm thrilled for you guys, really. Thanks. My thanks once again to Jonathan Glasner, uh, Stargate SG1's uh, executive uh, producer and co creator, uh, for helping to make this episode possible. If you, um, like Stargate, and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, if you haven't clicked like yet, please uh, do so. I would really appreciate it. Dial the Gate is brought to you every week for free, and we do appreciate you watching. And if you want to support the show further, get yourself a t-shirt or a tank top, sweatshirt, hoodie, something, cup, variety of uh, sizes and colors at dialthegate.com. Just click on uh, the merchandise tab, or you can type in your web browser, dialthegate.com slash merch. Check out is fast and easy. You can use a pay- credit card or PayPal. And thank you so much for your support. Things are um, cooking with gas with the show. We've got a number of special guests lined up. Uh, this is current as of a few days ago, so by the time this airs, this may be adjusted a little bit, but I doubt it. Um, if anything, we'll have more people added. I'm in talks right now. James Tishner, uh, visual effects uh, producer and writer of a couple of episodes of Stargate SG-1, is joining us February the 11th at 12 noon Pacific time. 
And then later that afternoon, evening, Anna Galvin, multiple roles from SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe. She was Chloe's mom. She was the Sakari um, uh, consciousness. And um, she was uh, the murdered lady in um, uh, Mitchell's episode. Uh, brains don't fail me now. It's, uh, collateral damage. That's it. All right. Um, Anna Galvin's going to be joining us February the fifth, uh, February the eleventh at four p.m. It's one of our uh, later shows. I really hope uh, you can make it. John Delancey, Q himself, and Colonel Frank Simmons is going to be joining us midweek episode Wednesday, February the fifteenth at eleven a.m. Pacific time. I know we're a weekend show, but you know what? I mean, some of these some of these uh, guests. There's no other way to do it, and if they say yes. So do we. So uh, we're going to have John Delancey joining us February the 15th. And then uh, Linnea herself is returning. Uh, Bonnie Bartlett. She is promoting her new book, Middle of the Rainbow, How a Wife, Mother, and Daughter Managed to Find Herself and Win Two Emmys. So if you go to dialthegate.com, you can click on that or just go to Amazon and type in Middle of the Rainbow as well. And that information is all there. Wormhole Extremists is continuing I'm not going to go through Wormhole Extremists, except to say that uh, on February 15th, we are doing a sci-fi movie, Alien, in the middle of the week. So it's our little reward for getting either halfway or a full way through a season. I didn't want to do one until we had had a full season one, uh, a full season of, of Stargate episodes under our belt with our core team. So we're going to do that now. My thanks, uh, tremendous thanks to my moderating team, Summer, Tracy, Jeremy, Reese, and Anthony. You guys make the show uh, possible behind the scenes. My producer, Linda Gate Gabbard Fury. She's also making, uh, sending out a lot of emails and making some calls to make uh, guests possible. And Frederick Marku at Concepts Web, our web developer over at Dial the Gate. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. I appreciate it so much. Watching the channel continue to grow just means everything to me. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and we'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo designed by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. Dial the Gate.